Welcome to Risk Sleep Repeat, a podcast that features influential guest speakers from the world of fire, health and safety. We're going to focus on trust-based safety, owning and embracing risk and the importance of people over paperwork. Hosted by me, Adam Clark, Managing Director and Mike Stevens, CEO of Praxis 42. If you're a fire, health and safety professional, join us for inspirational conversations about the future of our industry. In this episode, I spoke to Dr. Sean Davis, the Global Director of Compliance and Sustainability across the Royal Mail Group. Sean has led an organization-wide health and well-being improvement program called Feeling First Class. He holds five master's degrees, a doctorate in coaching and mentoring, and was voted as one of the 15 most influential figures in health and safety. We spoke about uh, just culture, consultation, and the risks associated with organizational change. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I think that we need to be really conscious that mental health issues are not just linear. So there's, it's not just one line of issues that people are facing. And by that, I mean there are other things that spin off from that. So there are financial issues, there are relationship issues, there are uh, general broader well-being issues. And I think, if I think back to the, the research that I did on my professional doctorate, that's why the happy, healthy and contented aspects came out so strongly, regardless of age or gender, uh, length of service within the organisation, it kept coming back to these, uh, to these themes. So I did what they call thematic analysis, which is where you take the, the, the findings from your interviews and distill it down, distill it down. And the happy, healthy and contented aspect came out really strongly from that we then build that out to see what those various aspects meant to people uh, and um, how people would define happiness and the component parts of that how people would define healthiness how people would define contented and, and and build it out built it out from that really i originally looked at uh, as part of my research i originally looked at the, a cohort that we called um the executive leadership development program team so that was the the senior leaders who were going through a program uh, a university-led program um, that had a coaching element to it as well as performance improvement self-development I use that initially, and then I and then I validated what I was finding at that level, uh, uh, from that level at other levels in the organisation. So, different managers, supervisors, then right down to front line to see what the the similarities were, because there was it really really early on in my research. So I was wondering whether age, length of service, gender, um, income what roles they would play in uh, in, uh, in the kind of broader well-being aspects and mental health um, and um, and at the end of it the conclusion that I came to was that you know whether you know you are a frontline employee or the chief exec uh, there are some common ties that bind around as I said happy healthy and contented so on that on, on that basis, then you you sort you tested across a, a range of the, the population in a in an organisation, which is a, well, I'd say that was it a, a well established culture, or was it was it something which is dynamic in terms of it going through a lot of change at the time? So that's that's a great question because um, the Royal Mail 
people say, oh yeah, I know the Royal Mail, and they say, we love our postman or woman, we're really proud to, to kind of the work that you do, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, an iconic institution. What they probably don't realise, you know, is, is the complexity of, of Royal Mail. And actually, when I was doing my research, it was just after, more or less, just after we'd been privatised, so we'd floated on the stock exchange, um, and we'd still, so we'd, we, were, we were moving the culture, hence why the title of my research is coaching well-being and organisational culture because there was still lots of deep-rooted cultural issues that I wanted to explore. So for example, Royal Mail is over 500 years old. You know, we're heavily unionised, we've got a very active communication workers union, Unite, CMA unions, what roles did they play? What um, what was the cultural environment? How was it, how, how was it transitioning from being state-owned through to being uh, listed and what were those uh, aspects playing out there so there was lots of lots and lots of of cultures and subcultures and then you st- then we were looking at it's predominantly male 88 percent male um, in terms right. of gender so what does that do to the culture you know you, you're still the new boy if you've been there 20 years what does that do to the culture and so there's there was a lot of uh, a lot of interesting cultural aspects to consider so did that vary your opinion then based on those ones that you're unearthing? Because the cult, culture can be, you, you talk about it, like you can talk about it generically, but you can get little pods geographically or functionally. You can. You absolutely can. Yeah, absolutely. That, again, that's a great, that's great um, observation because what I identified was that you got these cultures and subcultures, and as you said, pods, that's a great, great way of describing it. And for example particularly in the mental health space and we've done a lot in the last I've got to say as a society we've done a lot on on mental health just in the last three to five years uh, but I would say things like, I'm from South Yorkshire originally so so very uh, a traditionally very macho culture you know coal mine steel workers my dad's a steel worker and my mum my mum was a home help so I kind of grew up in a in a kind of working class background but seeing how mental health issues played out and it, and it certainly wasn't talked about um, as, as openly as it is now but there are still there's still some way to go in a lot of society and different cultures to enable people to talk about it so seeing different age groups and how they talked about it different pockets of gender different pods as you said and so there wasn't a, a kind of a one-size-fits-all and even in terms of doing my interviewing um, the 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 willingness to open up about things I noticed a huge kind of geographic age and gender um, uh, disparity yeah and and from your own um, background you know all our you know, this is a nurture nature type thing that goes on. How, how did you get, you know, through your journey from where you probably had that, you know, we don't talk about that type of thing, you know, post Second World War type things and, you know, what happened when things were very difficult. So how, how did you come past that journey? Because I guess your, your parents and your, your relations, your wider family must have had some sort of impact on the way that you could address those sorts of things. Yeah, yeah, I, I suppose, so I, I grew up in, in South Yorkshire in a, a small mining village and uh, I had a very, very secure, um, loving family uh, environment to grow up in, but I did see people around me that were suffering with um, uh, mental ill health and, and I saw that play out and I saw that manifest in different ways, so, you know, people drinking too much, smoking too much, kind of 
and things like violence and stuff because violence, I think yeah. you know back back when I'm thinking about what was mental health you know there was you know I could see that there was a big drinking culture at work there was you know there was things that used to go on which you thought was completely now looking back you think that's not right but you didn't call it something it's just like it was it, you know that was what was the norm sometimes because it all rubs off on you doesn't it yeah yeah so I, I was very lucky I never I didn't grow up in that sort of environment we certainly weren't you know, well off, but I, I was well off uh, emotionally and family-wise in terms of being loved and provided for by my my family. But I did see, and, and the other thing is, I grew up. I I, you know, I was I was in primary school while the while the minor strikes were going on, so I saw the impact of of uh, of you know hardship on lots of families as well, and how people um, uh, how that affected people, and in fact how it's affected some people even now friends and family members of mine that still talk about that still talk about it uh, the impact that it had on their longer term lives i think i was um soaking all that up without knowing that as we all do as we're growing up um and then i i went off to university um and uh was that, I guess was that I mean, something which was unusual in your yeah family yeah it was interesting because I didn't want to do sixth form. I wanted to go to college. I went off to college and I was the only one in my friends group that did that. Others either went and did a, a YTS, as was the case then, the kind of uh, the youth training scheme, or went and uh, or stayed at sixth form. Uh, I went off to college and then and then we finished college slash sixth form and I went off to university. And again, from my friends group, I was the only one who, who kind of went off to university. And there was a little bit of ribbing. There was a little bit of, you know, kind of... Um, are you too, you You're going to be a tough or something, you are or something. And, yeah, yeah, all, all that yeah. kind of. And I, and I remember probably my first experience of mental health personally or mental ill health personally was when I went off to university because I suddenly went from being in a really comfortable, secure environment um, to, to, to moving from... It's only 45 minutes, I only moved from from where I lived in, in Rothpond Dern to Leeds, 45 minutes away, but you know, moving into a shared house, uh, moving in with people that were second, third, and final year students, uh, having no real life experience, because I'd not been anywhere or done anything, and actually feeling out of my depth a bit, feeling isolated, feeling vulnerable, um, and and having to kind of find my way through it, which, which many people do, and that's, that's one of the areas which I'll talk about later on. That's one of the, the areas that I, I researched for for my book, uh, university, you know, moving away, uh, fledging the nest, and empty nest syndrome with parents at home. I remember my mum saying to me, "I used to go to your bedroom and sit on your bed and cry." Uh, I was only forty five minutes away, but but we we were a very kind of close uh, close family. So that was the first kind of time I kind of. I kind of had to struggle, if you like, with kind of uh, the uh, adapting. And that's why when, I, when we talk about mental health, one of the ch- areas I'm trying to champion is we talk about mental health, but I want to talk about mental health and resilience and well-being as well as mental ill health. So, for example, when I go to the gym, I, I am thinking about can I lift more? Can I run faster? Can I physically make myself physically fitter and stronger? So you talk about physical health. When you talk about mental health, 
nine times out of ten people jump to anxiety depression and the darker side of it and and i i i on a kind of personal mission if you like to raise awareness of of mental health and well-being so how can you protect your mental health through sleep exercise hydration relationships etc etc to try and and balance things because uh, as i said that automatic go-to of of mental ill health like i said the time I went to went off to university it wasn't it wasn't great but it wasn't a mental ill health episode it was me needing to kind of build my resilience and look at my own mental health and resilience and and coping strategies so, which is which is a good thing with hindsight because when i then moved to to london in uh, after i finished university i'd already been through one experience of of up up in sticks and leaving home so I'd kind of I'd, I'd I'd worked that muscle already, so when I had to do it again, it wasn't that that big a deal. So so is that in that sort of there's two things there. There's the um, I picked out from that is that you're saying that the, the the mental health thing turn it on its head and not do it as this thing of um, it's like when you say to somebody, "Are you stressed?" Everybody's going to say, "Yes, I am." Yeah. Are you under Are you under pressure? Is another thing, you know. And is that pressure thing good? Well, it is because we all need that. You know, like this morning, it was a bit pressured, um, and you know, it's hopefully it hasn't been stressful. But it's that it's the it's the, it's the terminology, and it's that recognition of the differences, I guess. So, is it is it not good that people come across those challenges? Because I think you, you could get into the, the, the state where people say, "Oh, don't put any pressure on somebody, or don't expose them to something which is either um, challenging or not." What, what's your thoughts on that? And this is where you've got to be careful, I think, with the stress and stress and pressure. Too much of anything is bad for you, as we know, right? But I do personally think a little bit of pressure and a little bit of, of challenge uh, it is is good for you, provided it doesn't become overwhelming and it's kind of kept in the context of the, the things that you can manage. So, for example, if I go back to my own, my own example, when I went off to university, I remember struggling with it and thinking, What's this? I also remember when I moved to London in '98, the first place I had to come to um, while I was sorting out my accommodation was a, a bed and breakfast on Slough High Street, and I mean literally on Slough High Street. And I remember getting there. It was the second of August, 19, uh, 1998. I got there about five o'clock, parked my car, went went into this B and B that I'd found. I was joining uh, a construction company the day after, and I was going to then find a shared house. I remember sitting on the end of my bed thinking, "What have I done?" Uh, in in this, there's a candlewick bedspread on the bed. For those of you that don't know what that is, it's kind of think back to kind of the the 60s and 70s and a bobbly fabric bedspread on the bed. A shared bathroom, a shared kitchen, uh, and the outlook was, as I said, a kind of Slough High Street. And thinking, what have I done here? And I could have got in my car and gone home. I could have, you know, I could have quite easily gone back to mum and dad's. I could have, you know, quite easily. But I was like, I, I decided that I wanted to use that challenge to kind of develop myself and to kind of strengthen myself. And it was the best thing that I've ever done. I mean, I'm still, I'm still down here. I live in in Maidenhead in Berkshire, which is again not that far from Slough now. But I kind of developed a network of friends. I've I've met my uh, my spouse while I've been here. We've got great, you know, great friends, great setup. I could have. I could have gone home, but stress and pressure in that in, in that is what spurred me on. But I'd caveat that by saying I knew I could have gone home. There's some people who've not got that luxury. Some people who are under enormous amounts of stress and pressure 
and um and, and that that can be very anxiety causing when you've got no alternative and you feel what am i actually going to do where where do i go and that's yeah it's the variables is the it's uh, i keep on trying to uh, pinch myself or push myself that I, I live in a bubble and it's about people saying i think the best thing i, I think from an ergonomics book by Stephen Pheasants it's this thing about the fallacy of design and he said that uh, this one where people say it's okay for me so therefore it's okay for everybody else because you have this perspective perception everybody's in the same spot but you say this this sort of background of where can I go to have that uh, place of rescue or that place of safety is key isn't it that you know for, for people to feel that they you know got somewhere else they can go and that can be work it can be, yeah, but th- there are other things as well, which is where the intersectionality plays into it, in terms of je- like gender, uh, disability, uh, your uh, orientation. I mean, it's a very, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's you've got all these kind of variables, as you said, that play into things. For example, I know I, I know someone who came out to their parents, and their parents wouldn't accept that, and basically said, right, you're out kick them out with immediate effect this was in the mid 90s and uh, I'm pleased to say that their relationship is now fully intact and the the parents fully you know fully accept him and his uh, husband and it's 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 a it's a good relationship they've got now but but it's not that long ago the mid 90s but it, it you know he it still was pretty uh, a pretty taboo subject and he he had nowhere to go, no one to turn to, under enormous amounts of um, stress and pressure. He actually found a lot of comfort in his job, because it was the one kind of constant that he'd got. And I remember talking to him um, at the time. He actually went he actually went to stay with a colleague, believe it or not. The colleague he thought he confided in the colleague, and the colleague kind of took him under his wing. And um, he his one constant was his job. And I think that's the the, the thing that we, we, you know, people recognise is this, you know, work is part of your motivation, it's part of your thing, it's your why. Um, and, and I think that if you're selling well-being to a senior team who could be quite hard-nosed, they could be, you know, risk acceptant, you know, how, how can you how can you enlighten them that about this well-being thing is that it's about being performance driven but it's also this background which is you know this welfare used to be called welfare well-being type thing which I guess in you know an organization like the post office that that sort of welfare thing is you know that's what I used to call it when I was in in what was called personnel then you know the welfare department which is a legacy of stuff that used to go on is that is that something that you know it's difficult to talk to senior people about or is it easy because you've come from a place where you can recognise that through your career? So there's a number of different things. I'm smirking at one of them, the welfare, the welfare department. So when I joined Royal Mail, I remember talking to one of our union colleagues about the welfare department as was, and he said that it had been it had been re rebadged as the farewell department, <laughs> the welfare department, because oh, any engagement that they had with them resulted in that person getting the getting the job. So it's, it's just interesting culturally and language-wise what that what that conjures up to people and how they they view that. Again, interestingly, when you talk about personnel department, I've heard people talk, say well, that's the anti-personnel department. Yeah, it was. Yeah. They'll take you out and <laughs> they'll take yeah. that'll take you out. So they 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 um, 
it's just fa- it's just fascinating the language that kind of people kind of use around these things. I think as a as a as a air, an area of well being, I think there's been some amazing work done. And I'm very fortunate. I, I see a lot of it within our organisation. I also judge on a variety of different programmes, and I see what's happening, uh, and it's it's absolutely phenomenal. Particularly where people link the business benefits of well being with um, organisational performance, so happy, healthy, high performance. So if you think about my research, which was happy, healthy and contented, and then you spin that into healthy, high performance, then, I mean, it's a win for the individual and a win win for the organisation. So some great stuff. However, there are still too too much, there's still too much um, token wellbeing for me. So fresh fruit Friday, drink a litre of water, Oh, now, I'm not saying that they're not good things to introduce, but they're an as well as, not an instead of. So you've got to have a well-being integrated into your, your ways of working and your strategy. So, for example, if you've got a culture at your organisation where you don't, you don't leave your desk, you work really hard, you're in the office at 7 o'clock in the morning, you're considered to be slacking if you don't leave until um, 9, 10 o'clock at night, you're being bothered by the boss evenings and weekends, you haven't got any time to switch off, a bowl of bananas ain't going to fix that. And I know that's very flippant for me to say that, but I do know I do I do know there's some organisations out there that that are really challenge, really really challenging, and and their effort to support well-being is a water tower and a and a, a bowl of fruit, and that's not that's not enough. That's just not enough no. because you know organisations that are really hot on well-being think about what we said intersectional intersectionality the different types of people the different makeup they integrate well-being into their decision making so again some of the best applications that i've seen for recognition awards are where they talk about having well-being in your business case so just for anything so how is this going to have an impact on well-being in this organization so that's what the really high performing organizations are doing now so so going back to that, you know, where does it break down then when somebody has this maybe tokenism of um, well, let's have a massage and that kind of thing? Is this about, you know, do you get the you get the buy-in from senior management and it could, you know, like board level, whatever uh, you want to call it, and then you get to the like the next layer and it's like, well, we've still got a bit of engagement and a bit of traction there. And then it gets to that middle bit and it all gets a bit spongy because either there's, there's, not, there's not in application, there's not a way of actually saying how does this work? Is that true or not? I think that is true and I think that's fair and I think that's why um, it is absolutely essential that your safety, health, wellbeing teams are aligned to your organisational priorities, your organisational focus uh, and also to your communications team. Um, And so some of the, I've got to say, not some of, all of the best well-being interventions that we have landed within Royal Mail have been done in conjunction with uh, our comms team and our operations team. Now, there's probably people out there listening now thinking, duh, of course, but there are, again, there are, I still know that there's some, some organisations, some teams who try and do well-being to people rather than with people. So to me, when, our, when we're doing anything, any of our programmes, be it related to musculoskeletal, mental health, uh, dog awareness, um, vibration, noise, hear any anything. Um, yeah. We we work with our operational teams to think about the impact on that, uh, and um, with our communications team 
um, to um, to make sure that we're landing with the right tone and and, and messaging. Yeah. So, so in terms of um, how you sort of get to the re- return on investment here, is there any measures you can share with others that are looking to try and get the message over to somebody senior? Is there, is there a, an ROI on this or is it just like, well, people generally feel okay or let's send them a questionnaire and do a temperature check? So I, I am on the Business in the Community Wellbeing Leadership Team and we've done some work and this is freely available inf- um, information so you can, you can Google that. So Business in the Community, bitc.org, look on their um, uh, return on investment calculator as well as they've got the Mental Health Toolkit, the Suicide Prevention Toolkit, the Suicide Postvention Toolkit, as well as a number of other of other things. And, and, and um, so that's that's great, some kind of freely uh, downloadable material. So you can, you can actually work out your ROI. But I think there's other things that you look at as well. So you look at, and this is again, measures that I've used within my research, your absence performance. So what does your absence figures tell you uh, is happening in the organisation? What uh, a particular groups, age, workplaces, gender, etc., etc. Then also, if you don't include a safety, health and wellbeing question in your employee engagement surveys, I would really, really encourage you to do that because uh, we, we introduced a, a wellbeing question in our, our feedback survey, employee engagement surveys, and we've seen a real uh, positive increase year on year. And we've not just in the percentage marks, the, the points that we've seen, sorry, but also in the free text where people are giving us their experience of of um, what they've, uh, the tools that they've used or the resources that they've used and the positive impact that it's had on them. Yeah. So do you, do you use uh, benchmarks? Because that's always the thing that used to get me was people would say, well, you know, business case for this, business case for that, go and benchmark. You know, how do you how do, you do that? Do you, do you do that because you're in a big organisation, you've got plenty of pals or you know people or how, how do you do benchmarking? So we do, I do use the networks like Business in the Community and uh, REBA, the Reward and Employee Benefits Association. I use their, their network and uh, and. Uh, for, for gathering information and data in. There's also published government information that you can get particularly on absence, which we, uh, uh, which I use. The main thing that, that, whilst benchmarking is incredibly important, particularly when you're doing a business case, um, I tend to use our own year-on-year information to, to kind of build out from, because there aren't in terms of benchmarking, there aren't very many organisations out there that have got 137,000 people working, you know, 365 days a year across different disciplines. So it's very difficult to find something. I mean, our biggest comparisons in terms of numbers and scale are NHS and some of your large supermarkets. Right. Okay. And I think that you know this this is a, a an area for practitioners. How do you how do you do that? Because you know what you, what's what gets me is that are, are you a, a health and safety practitioner? Are you a well being practitioner, or are you a businessman or a business person? Because all the things you're talking about are all things which are anybody that sits on a board would be talking about and thinking about if they're you know if they're tuned in understanding of you know, the bigger picture. Is that fair to say or? I, I think that is absolutely, absolutely spot on. And I am, a couple of things, I'm listening to a podcast at the minute called Think Fast, Talk Smart. 
um, which is just brilliant. I mean, absolutely brilliant. Uh, and that talks about effective communicating. I was out walking my dogs yesterday, and yesterday's subject was about how to engage with your audience. And, it, and one acronym that really stuck in my mind was, um, was AIM. So that was about your audience, the intent, and the messaging. So audience intent message. Um, And the reason why it really resonated with me is, and I can say this because I am a safety, health and wellbeing practitioner, we tend not to help ourselves. We tend to get in our own way and we think because it's legally or morally the right thing to do, that should be enough to kind of open the door. So we go in, the audience, we go in with our expectations, requirements, rather than the recipients. So I, I... Personally, my, my personal mantra is I, I, I love what I do. I love safety, health, well-being, sustainability, etc. But my, my mantra is I am a business professional and I contribute through safety, health, environment and well-being. And I'm not a safety, health and well-being person. And, I, and I'm doing, you can't say this, but I'm doing kind of air quotes. And the reason that I say that is... Because my role is to support the organisation in being responsible, ethical, high performing and make sure that, that safety, health, well-being is, is core to all that, that operation. So I need to be able to talk to the, the chief exec about what we will do and how that will affect, uh, how, how our reputation will be affected, how, how we can engage with the market, how we can take our people with us. I need to be able to talk to the HR director about what this will do for absence, for attraction, development, retention, attrition. I need to talk to the finance director about how my, my interventions and my team's interventions can support on claims reduction and costs and insurance premium reduction. But I need to go into it with them in mind rather than me. Now, I went and did an MBA, did my MBA at Exeter University because I wanted to be able to hold my own. I wanted to be able to sit around that kind of executive table and understand what those various people were talking about and what were their drivers were. Now, I'm not saying everybody should go off and do an MBA because it's not always suitable for people, but I, I think we can all think about aim, audience, intent and message and actually think about you know, to go in and say to somebody, the Health and Safety at Work Act says, I mean, it's going to, in my experience, it will switch people off because they think, okay, great, I'll, I'll do it because I've got to do it rather than because I want to do it. Whereas if you say, I want to talk to you about how a safety or wellbeing intervention can do this for your function, much more effective. Yeah, so so in terms of that whole having a, it's, it's about this thing like walking in somebody's shoes as a sort of like a, going to give away type sort of thing you know how, how do you end up being empathy so as a practitioner should you have be exposed as part of the program to go and work operationally and it, and it also brings me back it brings me on to something else which is it's um management by walkabout but you know if you're if you're in that place um where you're giving advice about something should they not work as managers and have that management responsibilities if you're going to be a practitioner is that something which is not achievable or is it something which is desirable? I, I think leadership development, management experience um, is 
it can only be a good thing. You can get it through kind of formal training programs or development programs, but there's also this phrase that I use, which is be at your game. So you can, and in every job I've ever done, so whether that be my Balfour Beatty job, my rock job, when I worked at Biffa or Royal Mail, within the first few uh, first few weeks and months, I, I did this kind of be at your game exercise, which was get out in, you know, get out and understand that organisation and business. So be in the yard with Biffa, be in the yard at six o'clock in the morning when it's freezing cold and they're de-icing the vehicle and they're going to then go out and collect, you know, the community rubbish. You know, be be on a, a construction site at seven o'clock in the morning when they're unlocking it, unlocking it up and getting themselves set up for the day and the concrete wagons broken down, three people are phoned in sick. You know, be in a raw mail delivery office, you know, when you know when you've got a, a massive influx of parcels and you've suddenly got to decide how you're gonna do that. And as a result of all of this, what what's the benefits that spin off? Is it because managerially managers are then recognizing you understand their pain? Is it because senior management can then listen to what you say with the business context? All of the above. So I think it gives you a credibility. Uh, I think it shows that you, it demonstrates you are part of the team and integrated and not not just a a bolt on. Uh, I think it gives you an understanding of the the organization and, and the challenges that it's got. So you're more empathetic and understanding. I think you know Stephen Covey. Stephen Covey's um, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Um, one of his, his, his habits is seek first to understand to be understood. So seek first to understand to be understood, which basically means kind of understand what 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 their position is. It's, it's a bit back to um, aim really about understanding. Don't make it all about you. Make it about them. Yeah, kind of understand. So it does give you credibility. It means you develop relationships further. It means that when you're then talking to people, be it operational leaders or senior leadership, if the, if you get the what would you know, well, you do know because you've done it. Yeah, you've not done it every day for five years, but in fact, you have done it. Yeah, and it's the pragmatism, you know, it's this thing about what's the ideal, which is we all go for this sort of like, you know, want to improve, you know, continuous improvement but actually within that you have to be pragmatic because that's what it's about and um, being able to find solutions and you can go observe somebody doing something but then going away and writing it at your desktop go and do it you know go and spend some time with them video it you know ask them because they'll probably have the solution that's what I've you know that's what I think from my career is that actually a lot of this isn't about me it's about somebody thinks comes up with a great idea which sort of brings me into this sort of what's consult, you know, how's, how's consultation important? Because sometimes uh, people think consultation, oh, we've got to tick that box. So what we'll do is then we'll have a, a safety committee and you go, oh, what's the purpose? Well, then we just have one. Well, you've got to have some you know, terms of engagement, but is consultation just about having a, uh, you know, a safety committee or having representative employee safety or safety reps? What? What is consultation in your mind? Well, I think consultation, when done well, and, and, and it's consultation with engagement, is amazing. I think if it's consultation as a, as a, a means to get, just to get a tick in the box, and it's a cop-out. If all you're doing is pulling people into a room just to kind of say you've ticked that box, or you've done that, that consultation thing, in inverted commas, well then, it, it will create 
really, really uh, mistrusting, uh, mistrustful relationships. So I think it has to be consultation and engagement with people being given a voice, an opportunity to challenge. It doesn't mean you're always going to agree. I mean, I, I regularly meet with, with uh, union colleagues and we'll talk about things. We don't always agree about everything all the time, uh, as you would expect, but we are having honest and open authentic consultation, dialogue, discussion, and coming to kind of an agreement. Yeah, and, the, and the thing is, of course, you, you get into this uh, dilemma where it becomes that somebody feels like being patronised because it's a bit like, we'll come in and we'll listen to what you've got to say, give you a little bit of a nod here, but then actually this is where it's going to be, guys. And um, you go, well, okay, that's very sort of decisive, but actually you didn't listen to me. So how does that feed into your well-being? And it's those sorts of, that sort of, from the senior to the next senior to the middle bit, and it's a bit like that middle bit is just basically giving them a nod, but it's not It's not what it's doing is, of course, it's just, just completely undoing those things, which is about trust and listening and trying to, to improve based on what people are seeing and what they're saying. If all you're doing is having a safety committee to, get, to make sure that you get a tick in the box for your audit, or the boss is not on your case, well then you've misunderstood the purpose of it and you've, you've missed the opportunity. So did you think from your upbringing, looking back to what was going on at the time with the miners' strike and all those industrial relations issues, have you, have you seen that in sort of helping you understand and how to make sure that managers understand that there's something bigger going on here because good industrial relations is all about making sure that you have those relations, it's in the title, isn't it? It's about having healthy and good relations. Yeah, so my my dad was a shop steward in the steelworks in Sheffield. So I grew up soaking it all in, right? I And I didn't realise uh, until I got, I got older, really. I was kind of literally soaking it all in. I remember him coming home saying, oh, you know, uh, management, in inverted commas again, at work have said or done this to us. Um, and I remember thinking, I mean, I was probably nine or ten when I started thinking, why talk to people, why ask people what to think if you're not going to then listen to them? And and I kind of followed it as I went through my teenage years, just listening to him. And I only told him this quite recently, in fact, that, that and he, you know, he, he was coming in and having a rant after work like you would do, telling my mum about things. And I was... And I was listening to it, and he, and I played back to him some of the things that I, he'd said, and you know, uh, uh, reflections. And he remembered them, and he could tell me about, you know, they'd reneged on a particular uh, agreement they'd gone, or they'd they'd gone in with good intentions, and then they'd gone and you know talked about it elsewhere, etc. So to me, I was thinking about it, it. I was being shaped then about the importance of trust and integrity, and that has played into my kind of personal, personal and professional life now. Yeah, but the underlying part about this is it's done in some ways is about this thing about well, you know it's pay, but it's the conditions part of it as well. So you know we can see in the steel industry and everybody knows in the you know from the mining industry hugely risky business. So so how does it you know from that point of view of people's fundamental part of I want to feel safe here? I'm asking, I'm telling you something as what's going on here. Um, so how does that work in terms of the, like the health and safety piece? Or I'll, 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 let me just sort of give you an example. So when I was in personnel um there was the tgwu were pretty strong in terms of deliveries and that kind of stuff and they came and they said we're not going out with the vans today because and i go okay because what so they're not safe well, why aren't they safe well we've done our inspection and they're not safe and it's a bit like well how can i say it is safe 
you know, because I'm sitting here saying, and I'm dealing with it as an industrial relations and, you know, how, how are we going to perform today? People are going to expect the deliveries to be made. Um, so it became health and safety as, a, as part of, you know, what you do at work is fundamental, isn't it? Yeah, yeah I mean, yeah, I, 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 as is well-being. Um, and I think um, when I think back again, some examples of, of what I saw growing up, it was not unusual for my dad to do what they used to call the doubling, which it means double one or back to back. So in, in into work in the morning, 6 a.m. through to 6 p.m. and then 6 p.m. through to 6 a.m. I mean, that in, in anybody's world, that's not that's not. You know, reasonable or, or right and um, it's not certainly not right when you're in an environment where you've got heavy machinery noise presses molten material etc etc but that was that sort of like those sorts of behaviors or those sorts of working practices sort of allowed because they knew there'd be some downtime where somebody would not have a bed that could go and have a, a sleep on and you know they could get away from it for a bit or was it just the fact that I mean, they weren't getting paid enough and that was a way of saying this is how i can get paid more was it all about that being motivated to be unsafe or to be un unhealthy? Bits of it all. I remember. I remember my dad had an industrial accident where a piece of chain um, broke away and and smacked him in the mouth and knocked out, you know, uh, probably half a dozen teeth. It was kind of well, you win some, you lose some sort of mentality. I mean, now if you're doing a root cause analysis, you would be saying, you know, you work seventy hours that week. You'd kind of there was no real supervision uh, there. It was kind of autonomous working as long as the work was done and the quality of the 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 steel work was uh, up to scratch. That was that was fine. So you were, it, I mean, I, I remember going as a kid to see these environments, and it was it was it was what I imagined when you read. A Charles Dickens book about a Victorian workplace. Yeah, yeah, and but I mean, it's awful that your father had a had an accident, industrial accident. Now, did that sort of um, sensitise you to that? Was that something that? How did it make you feel at the time? Because obviously, you know, you, your family's was so you were so close to your family, and you know, did, did that sensitise you? Because it's like, did you set off with the intent to be um, somebody in well-being and somebody that was going to be doing something like that? My, I went off to university to be a teacher, so I was going to work in teaching. But and but I did have a, I did have a very deep rooted desire to contribute to society. I wanted to be. If you you remember, there was that those who can teach kind of mantra, and I wanted to be that person. It didn't match up to my expectations. I might add, I did I did a number of teaching practices in different schools in, in and around Leeds, Dewsbury, Wakefield, and the like. And I didn't think I'd be able to. I couldn't give it what it needed and it couldn't give it me it was too I described it as glorified babysitting it wasn't at all like it's secondary education it wasn't what I thought it would be uh, but I could use my teaching qualification in other ways and I chose to use it in a safety consultancy and and so I always say that that safety found me but in answer, answer to your question I had got an already kind of deep-rooted view about taking care of people, you know, the, looking after people, work, the workplace should be safe. My dad had a car accident driving to work um, the, uh, one morning. Um, but again, he'd been doing a week of kind of 18-hour days. So, you know, you're not on your A-game. You know, someone drove into him, but it was a pretty nasty accident. But you could say, well, would you have been able to have, would you have been able to have preempted that or diverted that had you not been so tired? So, so there's these sorts of things that, that do... The, whilst they're not they're not a single contributing pole on the soul on the road to Damascus um, episodes as it were there's no one big 
there are four or five that kind of made me think, right, yeah, I want to be able to contribute to workplaces being safer, healthier and, and better. And the, and the justice in that, in terms of, you know, the injustices of the organisation, they thought that was a good idea. It's a bit like what happened at Clapham, you know, um, what, was the, what was the working regime? Well, everybody knew that everybody was going to be on overtime and you keep on driving that thing, which then culturally, that's why... You know, hidden gave them such a good going over, you know, and that changed their thinking about, well, we haven't had any accidents like that before. Well, it's about looking ahead, isn't it? But then if we talk about the underlying psychology of that, right? So I'm, I'm, I'm certain, I don't want people going away listening to this thinking I'm, I'm, I'm criticising because I'm not. I know with my dad, um, with you know, my dad wanted to be able to provide good food, a nice house, uh, a safe environment. And a, and a holiday once a year and we, we didn't go abroad I mean we went to the east coast Whitby, Scarborough, Bridlington but it was family time it's what we needed but everything my dad did he didn't drink he, he, did, he didn't go out uh, he didn't smoke he, he put his efforts into providing a safe secure uh, environment for me my sister and my mum and in order to be able to give us that he worked hard and worked long. That that was it. And so it's a, again, it's about understanding what is the motivating factor. If he'd have had the choice of whether he did twenty hour days, I'm sure he would have said no. But he did. No, and it's just it's, it's just an interesting um, part of when somebody um, is has an accident, and obviously you've had the experiences of your father, and that must have been quite. Well, obviously very impactful for you, seeing your father not being well and having to recover and all the ramifications of that. Then this other part about when somebody does have an accident or they end up with an ill health effect or mental illness or issues relating to their well-being, is that do you look at it and say, well, actually... Did, why did they do it? You know, why did they end up in that state? You know, this, this, and it's a bit of questioning about: Did they do it because they wanted to do it, or is it? You know, they, they thought that the risk was okay, or you know, what what goes on here? Because it's it, they want to like your father, they want to do the right thing for those that they love, and that's the thing which they don't see the consequences or the implications. Well, maybe. that root cause analysis, right? So if you think about an accident and root cause analysis, very, very, very rarely we talk about it a lot, but very rarely. Do we get really into psychological and human factors aspect of it? So we would talk about the fact we had an accident and that was caused by somebody didn't follow the procedures or somebody um, there was a lapse or an error of judgment. Someone made the wrong decision. Somebody put um, operations ahead of safety. We, we've got all this standard, but if you were to if you were to peel it back to the real why, why did they do it? You know. You know what? What? And I mean, and that is going to be massive. That is going to be huge because it's going to be anything from, you know, did they did they want to, did they want to put the kids in private school? Did they want to change the car? Were they literally, you know, living to survive? You know, we've, if you've got to think now, all the noise that we're hearing around cost of living, inflation, energy bills, etc. What are the actual kind of reasons behind it? So, if you're going to do a real review, you've got to think about um, all that human factors aspect as to why people and not in a superficial way but really really kind of deep rooted which brings us right back to what where we started from at the beginning when you talk about well-being happy healthy and contented and thinking about physical health mental health financial health and and the model that i developed is this pyramid in a circle one one dimension is physical health 
of the pyramid. One is mental health, one is um, financial health. The circle that it's in is the context that you're in. And we've been in a big COVID context, if you give an example in the last couple of years. So that how you how you operate along those three areas in your bubble of context. As my thinking and my research has, has moved on, if I was doing my doctorate now, it would be a square in a circle. And that square would be physical health, mental health, financial health and spiritual health in the circle of context and I'm not saying spiritual health in terms of conventional religion and church it might be that for some people but spiritual health in terms of emotional health connection and things that are important to you and you know we're seeing now the research out there on mental health that talks about how important it is to get back to nature and to find some time outside again i'm listening to another uh, podcast at the the uh, the minute which is by uh, dr rangan chatterjee and he he has got his podcast talks about the importance of of simple habits and spending time out in uh, nature and managing your your own health and well-being in small kind of bite-sized chunks and being kind to yourself if you do something if you don't don't manage to do something today we'll do it do it tomorrow just because you didn't manage to do that today it's not you've not written yourself off So I suppose this, you know, so what we're talking about is that thing about, you know, how do, how do we look at it? Because, you know, the, there might be a perception that people want more and more and more because they want to go and buy more and more and more. Whereas actually it might be that we go to this thing about what's more important is that, well, actually I want to work four days or I want to work flexibly. And that might be across a time uh, period rather than it being on those particular days. So how does that work organisationally, I suppose, is the and how does that influence those sorts of the research that you did originally, but also how how it folds unfolds now with senior management trying to figure out what is the right thing to do here? So I think there'll always be a core of people who want things. And so you've got, if you think back to kind of the, the hierarchy of needs, there will be people who want, you know, safe place to live and environment safe etc but I do think that certainly what I'm seeing in work and in my personal life with friends and god kids and nieces and the like niece and nephews is certainly after the last couple of years people are wanting more experiences so they're talking more about wanting to go on holiday wanting to meet up wanting to go to a concert wanting to go to the seaside wanting to have weekends away so I think I think experiences are uh, and uh, and shared time are currently um, uh, leading in terms of if people wanted a physical item or an experience. Certainly, from my if I think back just to Christmas, what what people wanted, what my uh, nephews, nieces, and uh, and friends were doing, it was more experience things than actual items. Yeah, and being able to spend time together are really important because that was something that we've had taken away from us. And I think that's that ability to then reflect on what was it that was so so challenging during the, the, the period we went through with the pandemic. So, you know, being able to spend time and just like, you know, let's just spend time. Don't have to be talking all the time. Don't have to be doing something all the time. It's just like being together. Um, it's, it's an important part. If you remember when we were in, kind of, in, in periods of lockdown and you could... You could you could see you know one person outdoors for a walk. It was considered a luxury, but lots of people now have still kept to that. You know, just this weekend, I'd got you know, if I think back two years ago, I wouldn't have had friends that text me and said, "Do you want to go for a walk this afternoon?" Or it, it would be you know, "Do you fancy going for a coffee somewhere? Do you want to come over?" But actually, those sorts of things have stuck because I think people are, are, are really understanding, either consciously or subconsciously, 
the, the real benefits of being able to get out outdoors, spend some time together, connect with one another and, and have a bit of fun. So, so the challenge, I suppose, from the organisational culture is about how, how can you deal with that, those sorts of expectations that people have? Because if they have that expectation, they can't realise it. Do they move on? Do they become disgruntled? Do they become less motivated? So I suppose organisationally, how does that play out going forward? Or is that something that you're in the progress of, or the, the process of looking at? Autonomy is a big deal. So if you think about it, so we've got 1,400 delivery officers, right? Land Enter, John O'Groats, and 30, 37 mail centres, as well as a number of officers, etc., etc. So what we can't do is oversee all that and manage that because we've got, for all the things we talked about, we've got different um, ages, different gender, that intersectionality piece, different wants, needs, interests, etc. But what you can do is kind of encourage people to do it for themselves. So to give people encouragement to, to set up. And we're, we're very lucky we do that. You know, we have got, you know, we've got different units that set up everything from you know, football, five-a-side football um, tournaments through to walks, through to mountain climbing, through to theatre trips, through to you know, um, dinner clubs, etc., etc. So what you can do is you can give people ideas and you can encourage people, but to me it's about kind of real autonomy. Um, so that it doesn't become an imposition and that people can pick and choose from this menu of ideas what it is that they, they want to be able to do. And also to respect that sometimes people don't want to do anything. Some people just are not that, you know, that it's not their thing. They don't want, and actually the worst thing you could do is try and force something on them. You know, that forced fun, that forced enjoyment is is some you know, some people's worst nightmare, yeah. Yeah, it is, yeah. So that autonomy thing, I think, is uh, interesting on the basis of uh, procedures, processes, safe systems, and um, what's the right thing to do. Is that going to play into the approach within the organisation in terms of, you know, this is what you need to do? Yeah, so we are a regulator business, so it's kind of, we can't give too much uh, autonomy around policy process and procedures. What we can do is give people uh, an environment where they can feed back continuous improvement suggestions for for change, and, and, and they do, they're very vocal, we're really, we're really lucky in that sense. Um, our chief exec, um, Simon, he is driving what we call the trust agenda, and for him it's a big deal that people are trusted and that we trust one another and that our customers trust us and part of that is autonomy to be able to make appropriate decisions to be able to take care of each other and our, and our customers so so yeah there is there's there's certain things that are non-negotiable all organizations have that um and we uh, um, um you know our kind of golden rules but we also do give people the opportunity to uh kind of contribute to continuous improvement and autonomy to to change that's appropriate for their workplace um it sort of brings me on to another sort of uh, question around uh, trust and things which um, was on a, a podcast which was linkedin it's quite interesting it's a bit sort of high level for me i suppose i'm not trying to dumb, dumb something down but I've, it's about just culture um, and just culture from now, what I understand, having been sort of um, made more aware of it, was about um, no blame, basically. Um, and there was a panel of probably 15 or 16 people um, from all sorts of, works of walks of life. Um, but it's this thing about no blame. 
because this thing about, you know, something happens and it's not about just, it wasn't safety, but there's a safety thing going on in the, the, the whole thing. So it's just culture, is that something which is within your organisation? Is that, is that an approach or how does it play itself out? Yeah, I, I'm, so we're certainly, we, we certainly work really hard with our unions to have a, a just and fair culture and that, and, and I, I, and this is a view that we share with you, I am not a fan of the idea of no blame culture. What I'm not defining as blame is pointing somebody in the chest and saying, it is your fault, you have failed. And, and But I think blame, it depends on how you're defining kind of blame. I, I want to understand what the fault was that led to that failure. And if there is a case to be answered around that, then I want to be able to understand why. The example I would give you is if I had a, if, if my partner was injured or killed at work um, and there was a factor that, you know, well, safety's, you know, we haven't really got, we've, we've got we've got 20 grand to spend and we're going to spend it on a new computer system or on safety and they decide to spend it on a new computer system in this fictitious organisation and that failed, that, that failed and, and my, my partner was injured or killed, I would want to know why. And I would be, and I, and, and whoever made that decision to to put safety secondary, I would consider them to have a large part, not wholeheartedly to blame, because organisations are large, complicated, structured. But I would want some, I'd want to understand what happened, and I would be looking for some accountability rather than blame. I guess. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. A just culture for me, though, I think is. Is just that is is where you say right. There's been a, a failure or a breach, and we're going to do an investigation, and we're going to find out what the causal factors are, and who played what role in that, mm. uh, and and what we need to do to remedy that. And again, I'm not always saying that that would result in in a in a penalty or a punishment, uh, but it may well be right. Well, they they they, they, they need some additional support, guidance, training, development, or if it is somebody that's got real ill intent well then some accountability and some consequence yeah because there's, there's two sides of this isn't it because there's this thing of well okay this is um, there's no blame here that's you know that's the sort of sound bite um somebody's done something which is like wow you know that it's definitely what they shouldn't be doing so they're using a mobile phone while they're driving and yeah. um, actually all you're trying to do is to find out why did you do that yeah but actually there should be some consequences surely but but then does that then sort of drive this? Well, you said there's no blame here. Well, hold on a minute. We're just trying to. The purpose of doing our investigation here is to find the cause, and if there's something which happens outside of that, which is then you know the the, the fair procedure that you follow for disciplinary matters, then there's two different things going on there. So does that then, if you tested that with the consultation with your union colleagues, how would that play out? Do you think? So we would talk about. So we wouldn't talk about blame. We talk about a just culture with accountability and consequence. And so okay. for me, a just culture uh, is you, know, you do the investigation and all. You know, the, you look into the particular issue and you identify where the accountability was and then consequence. And there, I'll, I'll illustrate that to you in another, in another way. So say, for example, there's a particular issue and there's a, a, a failure. Say a driver um, didn't put the handbrake on and the, and the car rolled down, the, the van rolled down the hill and it, and it hit a car at the bottom, at the bottom of the hill. 
Um, thankfully, nobody's injured, but we'd be doing an investigation. The accountability, so just culture is fair, open investigation, talk to all the people involved, the driver, supervision, supervision, management, etc. Um, if that individual had not been given a briefing by their line manager or not trained, then I would expect that line manager to be in the loop of accountability and consequence, as well as the individual that didn't put the handbrake on. Because whilst the failing, if you like, was by the individual, there will be more kind of systemic failures that go back through that. Um, and I think it's all too easy to just point your finger at the 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 last the last domino in the in the in the fallen pack, rather than going back. But I suppose, uh, I suppose, Sean, on the basis of this thing about near misreporting is key, and you want to know what's going on, and you can find that out in all sorts of different ways by review and performance review and that kind. Of, what would drive that person if they had left a handbrake off, and as long as they didn't damage the van and nobody saw it, and it's all it's all okay? Why would what's the, what's in it for me? Why would I, you know why would that get reported? Is that how do you treat that then? Because you know, if there's any form of well, we've got to go through this palaver of getting you know an interview, and I've got to report it on a bit of a piece of paper or on a thing. So how does how does that play out? Well, again, that plays into psychology and human factors and reward and recognition, doesn't it? So how are you? Yeah, you know, are you equally rewarding your positive interventions and your safe behaviours and 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 shining a light on that? And I think. To me, it back to accountability and consequence. It, so if someone's done something, you should celebrate the success as well. And you should be making an example of the fact that they've done something. So we, we I can think of a real-life example from last week. We have about 4,000 dog attacks a year. Um, and we pretty serious, um, pretty serious bites. Uh, and we, we issue one of our controls is a posting peg. And we give that posting peg, so they put the letter on the end and they put that through through the uh, the letterbox. This uh, individual postie put uh, the the, the um, went to open the letterbox and the, without the posting peg and saw a snapping dog at the other side and kind of thought better of it. Got the posting peg, put it through the dog. The dog got hold of the postage peg, which is hard plastic, and basically savaged it. And there's bite marks and tears and all sorts in it. That individual then came back and shared with his manager, and then shared with his work squad what happened. I was in the I was, I was yeah. in autopilot. I wasn't really thinking. I went to put it in. I stopped myself. I then used the posting peg. So hold my finger, hold my hands up. I I could have had my fingers bitten. I didn't, but I did yeah. use a poster yeah, yeah. peg. That just supports it. So so then so then it's how you then communicate that, share that, and get people to kind of to applaud it, rather than just focusing solely on failure or accident and looking for somebody to pin a blame on. So that's sort of like that's a good example of the um, the process of um, you know for the. the the HSG sixty five management system approach and this thing about checking, um, it's a big it's a big part of what we do at Praxis forty two, where we help empl- employers, we help our clients to do the checking bit. How's how's that seen and how's that uh, occur? Because it's okay to say trust and that kind of thing, but there's also this thing about trust and check. So how do you go about doing that? So I love trust but verify. That's a, that's a, that's the phrase that I would use, which is your kind of trust and check, um, and I, and I think it's uh, it, it. I feel that this this conversation has been 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 brilliant, but I do think there's lots of. I hope people aren't listening to it and thinking it's it's safety one hundred and one because lots of the things we're saying are, you know, standard. Um, you know, some might say common sense. I would then add to that, but 
common sense is surprisingly How many times have you had common yeah. sense? Health and safety, you know, it's just common sense, isn't it? The number of times that's happened to me and I'm thinking... But common sense is not that common, as my friend would say. Well, no, and, and from my point of view, I started as a 16-year-old, and one of the things that I did was that I was put in all sorts of different uh, departments. One of them was in a kitchen, and the chef said to me, like, go and clean up all that gear, and I put it all in this great big steel tank, filled it with hot water, put a load of soapy suds in there, but all the knives and everything went in there, and he came, he came around and gave me the biggest going over I've ever had. And it's, and it's changed my thinking about how I wash things up. But he said, and I said, well, you know, why didn't you tell me? He said, well, it's common sense. I said, well, it's not, because at home, we always used to use all the hot water and get everything, all the greasy stuff in there. And he said, well, that's not right. Well, I said, well, why didn't you tell yeah, me? Yeah, exactly right. that. Yeah, exactly that. And that's, that's, my, that's my counter to common sense. Sorry. I've no, 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 it's there, good. It's a good example. No, it is. Yeah, no, it's a good, it is a good example. I mean, there, there are lots of things here, but I mean, lot, I'm hoping that listeners to this are kind of using it as a refresh, a reminder, and that there are some new nuggets mm. that people are, are, are listening to. But yeah, you do need to trust but verify and um, that's why we have a safety advisor team and we have our safety audits and that we use audit output as one of our primary measures of, of success. Yeah, of course we look at accidents, lost time accidents, total accident, frequency rates, absolute numbers, etc. But also, what are we seeing in terms of safety conversations, near misreporting, uh, what are we seeing in terms of positive engagement, leadership? You know, how many organisations say safety is our number one priority um, is it is it really your number one priority? And and if so, prove it then. And actually, an an, an audit right across your organisation, and don't and stand you know, stand up and call people out. You know to and, and make them accountable. So if you're on a senior leadership team meeting or call, if safety's not mentioned, step in and say, you know. It's really important as well that we cover safety. And it's much more powerful if it's an, a, an operator saying that than it is uh, the safety director or safety advisor saying that. So give give your your clients, your customers, as it were, if you're, the, you're you know, thinking about people in your organisation, the, the autonomy and the power to speak up about safety. Hmm, yeah. So the thing that um, I was sort of brought up on was stop. Um, which is a supervisor's training observation program, and what we used to learn, what I learned from it was, is this was um, to put it positively. And what you're doing is you're trying to catch people doing something right. And I think that's for me is embedded in what I want to try and do is that when we go out there, we are trying to find if there's something non-compliant, but also to recognise when something's being done well, and that can be done at all sorts of different levels. So that's sort of. It's not about just being a safety thing. This is about how you should go out and try and find people doing things right. And it sort of feeds back, I guess, into that. The phrase I use for that, and just agreeing with you vehemently, is catch people in. So we talk about catching people out. How, how many people think, right, I'm going to catch you in? And by that, I mean catch people doing things right and then recognise it and make a big deal about it. I mean, and, and also get t- tell people. I mean, basic reward and recognition principles. People like, you know, as, as my mum used to say, even a dog wants a pat on the head. Um, remind people that they've done a good job and also get other people to tell that person. So make sure that in the same way you'd escalate people up, escalate things up to supervisors, management, senior leadership, if there's a problem, are you doing the same thing if something's great? Are you calling people out for their, their strong safety leadership? And that feeds into recognition, which then feeds into well-being, which makes the whole part about what you're trying to do with the well-being programme. 
If I was talking to a new uh, non-exec director, new board member, new senior leadership team, I would talk to them, uh, I would ex really encourage them to understand the organisation that they're in. So don't think they know it. I mean, actually go out and, and, and you know, walk a mile in the, in, in the operators, in the organisation's shoes and experience it. I would also uh, really in, in challenge them to actively think about where they can recognise and acknowledge um, strong performance. I mean, lots lots of time in my experience, and I'm a non-exec director elsewhere, you do tend to get your reading pack and you tend to jump straight to the reds. What's not going so well? What's what's the problem area, etc. Challenge yourself to look for the greens and to, to look for the, the positive and to recognise that. And also, do not, do not underestimate the role modelling, the importance of role modelling, the role you play. And again, another story to illustrate that, I remember I worked for a very, very, very large construction company and we did a big change programme, transformation programme, safety behaviour change programme, when it was safety behaviour change was really early on and we spent hundreds of thousands of pounds on it. Uh, but it was very successful, it was landing really well, the feedback was great. And then I was out on a site visit and I got the Chief Operations Officer to come and uh, to come and meet me. And he turned up on site, his driver got him to site, and he got out of the car in his Gucci loafers and his suit and walked across site with no hard hat on, no foot protection, no high vis, wasn't using the walkways, and it was a disaster because it's quickly unravelled everything. Now, I managed to, with a bit of smart thinking, recover it. We did a, an exercise, a, a, a film with him about not allowing yourself to be distracted and the importance of role modelling leadership and the fact, you know, saying we all have days where I'd just been in the car, I'd come off the call, I'd been talking to the chairman about X, Y and Z. I was completely distracted, it can happen to all of us. And we did wrestle it back under a kind of slip, lapse, kind of even I as the chief exec can drop the ball. but. Yeah. It could have gone horribly it's great wrong. That you spotted what was wrong. <laughs> yeah. I suppose you could you could turn it positive and say, well, at least you knew what I was, I was doing wrong here, guys. Yeah. So, so, so yeah, role yeah. modelling is you know is, is hugely hugely important. So thinking about you know uh, walking the talk and also if you've made a mistake and you make a mis if you make a mistake as we all do, then put your hands up and say that you made a mistake because you know we're all we're all human we're all open to 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 errors in judgment to poor decision making at time and just call it out and say you know and i'll do better that's it there's one thing here i just wanted to express through my career and, and being in, in organizations that went through, go through lots of changes and i think we probably touched on it when we first met up when you have organizational change which is like the leadership change um how big a risk do you think that is and, and what often gets forgotten. I think if you have an organisational change, be that leadership change, operational change, downsizing, upsizing, uh, acquisition, merger, disposal, whatever, it, it, it's really, really important, really, really important that um, you don't allow the day job to get in the way. Um, and I think, um, and, and that's up to all of us to make sure that we don't drop the ball of safety, health and well-being, and particularly well-being. If, if you've got large change programmes that give a lot of uncertainty to people, well-being, things like your employee assistance programme, your communication, your engagement, your leadership and leading, navigating through change is incredibly important. So, so make sure that you're factoring that into your transformation uh, and change programmes, because if not, you run the risk of 
the day job being uh, primary and then just trying to tack on safety and well-being at the end of it and they're incredibly important I would say probably the most important time to keep your eye on the ball is going through those times of change yeah so I've observed where it's this thing where does uh, health safety well-being where does it sit in an organization and it ends up in well it's a legal thing so we'll give it to legal counsel or oh it's a risk thing let's give it to the the risk and compliance team or you know or, or let's try it in operations and see what happens there and when you do your risk profile or have you have you got a risk profile which sort of shows all those sort of well we know driving we know violence and aggression and all those are on my risk profile does organizational change feature in that um in in the case of our risk registers yes it does i but i do think you make a really good point and it's something else i covered a couple of weeks ago when i was talking to someone pandemic response i'm sure most people had pandemic or risk of pandemic as on their risk registers but I think it was probably an academic oh we might have that the reality of what happened when we had COVID and how organizations and individuals and teams responded to that I I mean a lesson learned for everybody and I think I, I would really encourage people to go back armed with that seeing how quickly things can change as we as we saw from you know standard operation into lockdown out of lockdown back into lockdown is it in your risk register are there other issues that you might need to be be mindful of and um, would you be equipped and ready to kind of respond to it because that is another organizational change as well as your kind of planned transformation changes but things like pandemic is another one to be mindful of yeah, yeah. And I just sort of reflect on you know in something like uh, nuclear industry organisational change is a big risk because the just at the sort of um, the sharp end, you know, somebody that becomes not there anymore was the person that did the thing, which meant that you know you turned the valve and the valve then fails and causes an injury. So there's all those sorts of go down the line, but also how do you keep the wheels on? And that's where you know if you've got somebody that you've got. Or lined up, you've spent some time with them, educating them, and then they they move on for whatever reason. How how do you cope with that, and what's your advice about how to deal with it in terms of getting either airtime or making sure they understand what's important? So I've I've been in organisations where we've done change programmes, and you've done it by function. So if you think if you think about the function and the team as as a as a vertical, I think you need to think about the horizontal to your point about what happens when that person who did that comes out so say for example you're doing an organization change and you've got a vertical of operations then you've got one of hr and then you've got one of finance and one of it if you go down each of those and take out 10 15 20 percent of your heads or you recut it what happens when you go when you boil it up to the top and look at the horizontal what happens to the guy who normally did you who ran your report for your board report to give you the stats to do what if he's not or she's not there? What if the person in operations who was the person that led on your driver license checks, if you like, isn't there? What what happened? So so you've got to be really mindful of the vertical and the horizontal and the risks that fit down through that. Because if if not, you you run the risk of not knowing that something's missing until it's too late. Yeah, and that's the you know, and, and that's the, the the big part about what's sometimes observed is that you get an organisational level, and then it's a bit like we'll just sort it out. So you get like the, the the top line, and then you go like what goes on below that, we'll just get on with it. And it's a bit like well, I mean, this is a bit of a it's a bit of a bun fight, or it seems like it because nobody's looked at it in a sort of a very 
holistic and integrated risk management way, yeah? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Sean, that's great. Thank you very much for joining us. Um, I've got a lot out of today. It's great to be able to sort of share common themes and understandings, observations from a, a career that I've had, which I've found really uh, exciting and uh, say to anybody that wants to understand how organisations operate is that health and safety, well-being is a great place to be. So um, that's great. Thank you very much and have a great day. Thank you. No, thank you very much for having me. I think um, some amazing, amazing subject areas, some great questions there. And I think things like these discussions are really, they're really helpful for me because as you're answering the questions and thinking about your responses it acts as a bit of a refresher for you as to why you do what you do and also you know balls that you might have dropped yourself or habits that you might have got out of uh, yourself so there's i've taken a lot away from it uh, too so thank you for the opportunity and i wish you and you and, and all the listeners are absolutely the very best going forwards thanks so much for listening to risk sleep repeat if you'd like to appear on the show if there's a topic you'd like to discuss or if you want to let us know your thoughts, please do so using the hashtag risksleeprepeat or get in touch via our website at praxis42.com.